to be or not to be? That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die, to sleep, no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come? Doc, just do it! Hey, Claudius. You killed my father. Big mistake. Something is won in the state of Denmark. And Hamlet is taking out the trash. Stay thy hand, fair prince. Who said I'm fair? Tell this sweet prince good night. To be or not to be. Not to be. Two interpretations of the bards. Greatest speech, probably, the to be or not to be speech. This soliloquy from Hamlet, just showing you how much variety there is between Kenneth Branagh's interpretation, stunning, wonderful, and Arnold Schwarzenegger's. This is the Structured Rambling Podcast, and today we're talking about Shakespeare. Hi there, this is Structured Rambling, a podcast about literature, ideas in literature, the texts, the themes, the virtues and beyond. My name is Paul, I'm a reader, a writer, a teacher, a fan, and a pig owner. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I am excited. Today is the 1st of September, 2020, and it's also the first day of school. It's a weird day. We're getting ready to go back in the COVID world and try to educate kids without infecting or being infected by them. But regardless, those of us who teach are very, 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 very excited. And so in honor of that, I thought I'd talk about one of the things we teach. There are very few inevitabilities in the classroom. That's one of the many reasons I love it. You can teach the same things every year, which I certainly try not to do, but the makeup and needs and experiences of your audience can make each class different. Just like how every time a Shakespeare play is performed, 
it's different because of who does it and how it's done. And yet, despite what I've said, there are few constants in the classroom, and most of them have to do with the texts we read. When the text is a poem, there are groans from your audience. When a novel or a short story, there's a, an anticipation, a hope that it doesn't suck, and a quick check of length. Probably those two things don't happen in that order, but they're probably directly related. And when a film is put up, nothing but celebration, no matter how in-depth the analysis is promised to be afterward. No matter how old the film is it, how dead the actors, there's always jubilation when something is put up on the screen. Most consistent of all is the nearly universal despair that arises when I introduce any play by William Shakespeare. Invariably, someone will say how much they hate it, which is never specific enough. Never just him, the whole package, the whole experience, the whole thing. They hate it. Shakespeare is an it to them. Not every time, but often, some adventurous young person will ask why. Why do we do this? They assume that the answer is because or because we have to, which are not answers, and relegate Shakespeare to the useful in the real world trash bin along with calculus and word searches and memorizing the order of Soviet premiers. This is unfortunate. That's why when I teach Shakespeare, I have started asking the question myself to start. Why Shakespeare? Why do we make you do this? There's usually only answers of because you're mean or because you hate us or lamely because we have to or with at least a little thought, we don't need to, teacher. For my resolution, I go back on what I was saying about calculus. I find some aspiring engineer in the class and ask, what good is it? What's the point of calculus? What use is theoretical math? Why do we do this? There are sometimes really good attempts at answers. Sometimes lame attempts at answers, sometimes funny attempts, but no one can really tell you why we do calculus. Well, I don't do calculus, but someone does. Some sad, hopeless person who likes logarithms and cosines and such. Find that person. Hug them. They need some good in their life. When I ask an athlete, say a hockey player, who is good but has no aspirations on the NHL, why they watch the big leagues? The answer is easy. I say, why do you like watching Sidney Crosby or Connor McDavid? And the kid says, because they're the best. Aha! Humanism. We don't need calculus in our daily life. But as humans, is there not merit in the study of how far math can go? Putting a vulcanized rubber disc in a net on ice serves no daily purpose, but if you're going to watch someone do it, should that person not be really good at it? Nay, maybe even the best? Then I ask them to give me some simple instruction. Tell me to do something, kids. And they'll say, open the door. And I respond, 
perhaps like this. O Janus, grant me the spirit so I may wrench this oaken portal free from the binds of brick and mortar and unhinged allow passage through the liminal from vessel to end point. Shakespeare wrote for the stage, yes, but above all, he wrote poetry, complicated and crafted, loaded with classical and biblical allusions, with figurative language like metaphors and similes, with puns and other double meanings, and a lot of dirty jokes. It was heady stuff. People in Elizabethan or Jacobian England didn't talk like this. They didn't talk like Shakespeare when they ran into their friend on the street. It was art and it was entertainment. Reason number one to read Shakespeare is studying our language, our communication. This is the equivalent of studying calculus and mathematics. It is worth noting how far the English language can be taken, what it can be stretched to do, what we can achieve with it. The second reason, it's a meeting of the modern and the old. It's important that he was writing during the Renaissance because so much of Shakespeare's work is looking back and ahead at the same time. Keep in mind the Renaissance was a rediscovery of learning of the classics, uh, of, of stuff that had sort of maybe not been lost. That's kind of overstated that, that we've lost all this classical learning during this quote-unquote dark ages, but it definitely partly due to the fall of the Roman Empire and partly due to the rise of the church. But learning wasn't practiced uh, as well for a period of, of about a thousand years. So Shakespeare was writing in this time of learning, of rediscovering, of, of, of re-pushing boundaries. Virtually none of his dramas are original. Next to none of his characters are not stolen from someone else's. But what he did was he took existant tales and he raised them through the capability of his art. Yet he remained true to the source. So let me give you two examples. Merchant of Venice, one of my favorites, and the unignorable Hamlet. Merchant of Venice is a comedy. One of the later comedies but not quite what is called a problem play. The problem plays were texts like Measure for Measure, which break the strict conventions of the comedic form. For example, for it to be a comedy, there's usually a bunch of weddings at the end, there's usually mistaken identities, there's usually females dressing up as men, which, yes, in Shakespeare's stage, when women couldn't be on the stage, uh, you had a young boy dressing up as a girl dressing up as a boy. You just wonder if he just wore his regular stuff on stage. Another critical rule of comedies is no one is supposed to die in them. No one does die in Merchant of Venice like somebody does die in, in Measure for Measure. But in Merchant of Venice, we come within a hair of a man having his heart cut out. The traditional stories Shakespeare steals are the nasty Jew who hates all Christians and the story of having to open um, the right one of three treasure boxes in order to marry a princess. It's a puzzle. However, the bard quickly expands this format. Don't kid yourself that Shakespeare was so ahead of his time as to show compassion for Jews. 
But Shylock is at times a much more complex villain than the nasty Jew who's going to come eat your children. That really, truly was still believed in in Renaissance England, if you can believe it. Antonio has been awful to Shylock. When Shylock is defeated, he loses everything he has, including his religion. Okay, he was going to kill a guy, but the punishment he receives is a lot more Old Testament than New Testament. And the character of Portia um, actually comments on this. As to the princess of the story, who is Portia, there are complications because Bassanio's depiction of himself to her is based on lies. Portia lies to the court, posing as a young man, a learned clerk, in order to save Antonio. And Antonio may be lying to himself about the fact that he loves Bassanio. The foundations of a good relationship shouldn't be lies. As for Hamlet, it's a simple revenge play. Easy as that. You killed my dad. Big mistake. Hamlet is an excellent place to see how Shakespeare looks back and forward at once. How he was the meeting place for the old and the new. It's a revenge play where the plot goes, the plot goes wrong and many people die. This is a form of tragedy inherited from the Greeks. Shakespeare would have known it well, where only dramas were tragedy and comedy a sort of history. Aristotle, in his Poetics, says quite clearly that tragedy is the highest form of poetry. When Shakespeare started making plays that feel more like our own modern sentiments, where it isn't about everybody dying in the end, they were dramas with happy endings. They were the so-called romances. The romances like The Tempest that Shakespeare wrote at the end of his career actually feel the most like our modern movies. They're, they're the most in touch with a, a modern drama. But Hamlet is so much more than a revenge play. In Act 2, Hamlet has the player king, an actor, recite a favorite speech about the death of King Priam at the hands of Pyrrhus, Achilles' son, um, and Queen Hecuba's sorrow at seeing it, all during the fall of Troy. The, the Greeks have come in in the Trojan horse, and they're slaughtering the city. During the Renaissance, these were very familiar terms and stories. They weren't just illusions. They weren't needing explanation. Today, anyone not really that educated in the classics, which is most people, would only recognize the name of a tendon and references to a form of computer virus. But it's Hamlet's reaction to the player king, to the speech he makes about this slaughter, that, that, it, that makes this more special. Hamlet is a character of complexity, of wit, of pathos, and he's art trapped in a simple revenge play. While the plot is moving along, Hamlet keeps taking asides to think and speak about absolutely all aspects of life. Hamlet's the best place to show you Shakespeare's greatness because that character is so much bigger than the play that binds him, just as Shylock is a lot more than a Jewish folk villain. Years ago, the eminent scholar Harold Bloom wrote a gigantic book, nearly as long as the complete works of Shakespeare, called Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human. In it, Bloom analyzes every play in the Shakespeare canon in an essay for each one to support the thesis that Shakespeare, in the modern sense, is where we get our humanity. This is the third reason to read Shakespeare. 
The classics like Plato and Virgil, the Bible, old folk tales may still speak to us in their ways, but they've grown dated. There's so much in the classic that feels in, in the classics that feels foreign to modern readers, and yet they remain the most influential materials before Shakespeare and before the Bible for a reason. The universals in Plato speak to us today. If only we had leaders who were reluctant to take power and well-informed about the truth. And yet the Greeks and Romans and Hebrews all had slavery. Women were lesser creatures. The Old Testament is rife with incest, polygamy, murder, revenge. The New Testament is about socialism, but has been sadly misinterpreted and has a history of justifying atrocity. What Shakespeare does for us is focus what matters in these texts through a 17th century lens, and because he was such a forward thinker, it aims it ahead and influences us. Many, but by no means all of his female characters are much more liberal, intelligent, and interesting than their male counterparts. I'll again call to mind Portia in Merchant of Venice, by far the most interesting character in there. The same goes for his fool characters and many of his knaves. I'm not saying Shakespeare believed in universal equality, despite being a Christian and Christianity paying this a non-practical lip service, but he was ahead of his time. We can't fully appreciate 300 BC. We can more fully appreciate the Renaissance. Shakespeare of the Renaissance could appreciate 300 BC better than us and bring what matters forward to us, or at least aim it at us. Shakespeare holds more than any other collection of writing the true human experience and what it means to be human. With apologies to the classics, who had universals that applied to what it meant to be a Greek or Roman, and a man, and to the Bible, which had universals of what it meant to be a Jew or a Christian, and a man, Shakespeare is for all of us. Why Shakespeare? Because Shakespeare is life. But if you try to go alone, don't think I'll understand. Stay.